0: I suspect that just about anyone who spent time in justice work, whether as a nonprofit director or social worker or foster parent, has had a time when they woke up one day and sensed deep in their soul that they'd lost their way. Being honest, for me, that's happened many times. There are moments when I've realized that I've become more caught up in running an organization than in earnest love for the people we're trying to help. At others, I've seen my passion for justice becoming more about a cause and my own efforts to repair the world rather than simply being a response to God's love. And worst of all, I'd have to admit that there have been times when I've been far more concerned about how people might perceive me as a leader than in whether I'm truly leading and loving from the heart. Maybe you've seen that in your own life too. In this episode of Justice and the Inner Life, I talk with Pastor Eugene Cho, about ways that our good passion for justice can become far less than God intends it to be, and what we need to do to get back on track when we've lost our way.
1: Welcome to Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans.
0: We'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here's your host, Jed Medefind. Well, I am here at the CAFO 2018 Summit with Eugene Cho, a pastor, a father, a friend to many, and uh, many other things as well. But uh, uh, just a pleasure, Eugene, to be with you here, and welcome to Justice in the Inner Life. Thank you, Jed. Really, uh, it's an honor to be here. So Eugene, the, the subtitle of your excellent book, which I would recommend to anyone, the book Overrated, asks a provocative question. Are we more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing the world? So what was it that, that prompted you to ask that question?
1: Yeah, the subtitle is really meant to be a, um, a confession. It's not a, a how-to book. It's not a guru book. It's, I think, some, taking some time to do some inner reflection some uh, contemplation and realized that uh, I needed to fess up to myself mm. to my family to my congregation uh, that as a preacher that as a believer I could talk a good game of justice but uh, I was really struggling with the embodying and the sustaining of convictions that I felt the Holy Spirit place upon my heart.
0: And, and what do you feel like was key what, what played a key role in that mm. transition from from caring about justice to really seeking to do justice, including the costliness of that. Yeah.
1: Well, um, I think it begins with the fact that I, I got it intellectually. You know, I got it cognitively. And um, maybe for a lot of Western intellectual college-educated Christians, uh, I don't think it's because we don't know what's going on or we're not aware of certain things. Um, but as a preacher, I was constantly writing blog posts. I was speaking on these issues at conferences and what have you. Um, but I think it was just through prayer, through scripture, not rocket science, but in, in engaging some of the spiritual gifts and disciplines, uh, I was feeling really convicted. Um, and it took me a long time to come to, um, to, come to terms with the Holy Spirit. Um, there was an event that took place in my life where I had a chance to travel to, uh, to Burma or Myanmar and saw brokenness and injustice, saw women and men and children impacted by genocide and injustice. And I came back home from this event and I really felt that I needed to do something. And my to-do list was basically I should write a sermon, maybe write a blog post, and maybe put something on Twitter. Uh, I couldn't think beyond that. It never became internalized where, how does this impact my life? Uh, Where it becomes costly, where it becomes sacrificial, where it begins to impact the way that I pray. And it uh, was a real long conviction of about three years where Mm -hmm. I really began to wrestle with God. Uh, I think that's really when I began to realize that justice isn't a one-time event. It's not a check that you write. It's truly part of our discipleship. It has to be part of our identity in response to the gospel work in
0: our lives. And so if someone is at the place where where you were when you suddenly realized, I... uh... Not only do I love the idea of justice, but I, I would suspect that, that it was sincere. I mean, it wasn't just for your own brand. You, you really wanted to, mm. to champion good for these mm. uh, different issues. Yeah. But if, if someone realizes they're there and they've been speaking and writing and blogging, but they realize that it, it, it really hasn't cost them a great deal, yeah. what would you say to them in that moment? Yeah.
1: Well, there's a couple things that come to mind. Number one, I want to just affirm them. You know, because I think we can go to the other extreme by shaming people Mm. with our self-righteousness and look what I've gone through. And I think we see people on the other spectrum being shamed and slammed on a constant basis. And I want to be careful about that. Uh, The book isn't about trying to shame or slam people. That's the reason why it's written from a confessional tone. Mm. Um, But I want to begin by affirmation. I'm grateful for women and men that have gone before us, decades before us, that have really championed this cause. Because there was a time in the conversation within the church where when you talked about justice, man, you were out on an island by yourself. You were called some nasty things. And, and so I'm grateful that we live in a context right now where, where Christians, including young people and old people, people from different backgrounds, that they get it. You know. And so I'm really grateful for that. So I want to affirm them, and I want to celebrate what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, having said that, I think that if we truly sincerely desire those things in our life, to be about God's work, mercy, justice, flourishing, shalom, inevitably Mm -hmm. there will come a time when it will become sacrificial, where it will become costly. Uh, What I often tell people is that everyone loves justice, or more accurately, everyone loves the idea of justice until there's a cost. What we have to understand is there is always a cost to justice. It may not be 24-7, it may not be instantaneously in the beginning of our journey, but there will come a time, and when we don't have that inner rootedness, our theological rootedness in scripture, in the person and the work of Jesus, then my fear is that we're going to crumble or we're gonna scurry away because it is costly and it can be dangerous, and at times, Um, exhausting, whatever you Mm -hmm. want to call it. Mm -hmm. So for me, that time came when after that trip to Burma, Myanmar, uh, my wife and I, we made a covenant to pray about what we should do. And as bizarre as it sounds, the Holy Spirit convicts both my wife and I separately. Uh, And I share this not to sound boastly, so I hope that those who are listening, that they would extend some grace here. Um, But we felt convicted by the Holy Spirit to give up a year's wages. Now, I should confess, I like, um, how do I say this? Um, to be bluntly, I like my money. I feel like, as a pastor, I worked hard for my paycheck in yep. my church. Uh, we have three kids that are now in college that back then were eating six meals a day. I don't know if you know what that feels like. <laughs> hey, I got five kids, yeah. I know all about that, So you know, yeah. but it was hard. And the thing is, I can't deny that I felt distinctly an impression of the Holy Spirit, which was confirmed by my wife, simultaneously as she prayed as well. Mm -hmm. It took me three years to say yes to that because I was wrestling with the cost. Uh, And it's not the financial thing, it was all the anxiety, the worry, what kind of a father or a husband, or all of these questions that came up. And so um, during that time, I really began to realize, wow, I really have been more enamored by this idea of justice pursuing. Thankfully, I can testify to God's goodness and tenderness and grace to not shame me again, and not judge me and not uh, banish me, but I think to really restore me, if mm. you will. Mm. And that was really important. Uh, but that's what I would say is that inevitably, I hope that people continue with sincerity, stay the course, but there will come not just a single time, not just two times, but many times where we'll ask ourselves, is this worth it? Hmm.
0: What are you seeing in terms of, of your church? Because mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of young folks there, um, many who, who are passionate about mm-hmm. justice. And just like you said, that's something so much to affirm and say, okay, something about your heart is resonating with something in the heart of God that you yeah. care about these things. Yeah. But then as they begin to wade out into that, that space and encounter those costs, what, what are you just observing as, as a pastor? Yeah.
1: It's a great question, because I think uh, this conversation has to happen, not just individually in families, in communities, but also in our churches as well. Uh, It needs to kind of be pervasive within the larger Christendom, because we're having these conversations about justice. So I pastor a church in Seattle called Quest Church, lots of 20 and 30-somethings. Just so privileged to be uh, the pastor there, Mm -hmm. uh, along with others. And, um, you know, I don't know if this is always a good thing, but when people talk about Quest, particularly in the Northwest, they'll refer to Quest Church as a, oh, that's a justice church. It's a justice-minded church. Now, it's not a bad thing to have attached to your name, but I constantly tell our congregation, it's really not what we wanna be about. We want justice to come out of an overflow, Mm. an overflow out of our passion for the whole gospel. Um, that's probably what concerns me the most, to the point that sometimes I'll get emotional talking about it, even as I'm getting emotional now, because I worry about our, our church and I worry about lots of young people, because even good things, when it's not rooted, I think in the gospel, can actually become idolatrous. And it festers a self-righteousness. Mm. And sometimes it festers an exhaustion or cynicism yeah. or yeah. paralysis. And so uh, those are some of the things that we're seeing, hints of cynicism, hints of paralysis is overwhelming, and sometimes just exhaustion, people that are being burnt down. And not just burnt out from the work of justice, but as a combination of one, two, or three of those things, we're seeing people actually abandon, I think, community, and hmm. occasionally their faith. Hmm. Hmm. And so uh, that concerns me. And so it's this continual reminder to the church that we want to be about the whole gospel, that Jesus saves and Jesus is at work restoring, and that as I share those two things, a great commandment, a great commission, the single name that I've mentioned in both is the name Jesus. It's Jesus's work. We're, participate, we're invited to participate in it, but we're not the drivers of it. And so we have to be aware of things that I wrestle with, the the hero complex, the savior complex, the messianic complex, uh, to try to keep Jesus at the center of it all. And uh, again, to be reminded that, uh, that we need to be rooted uh, in the heart and character of God. Hmm.
0: That is so good. You know, after um, many years away, my family and I have recently moved back to Washington, D.C., and, and it's a city, despite all the, the cynicism about it, it's a city where people generally go there not to get rich or to get famous primarily, but to make a difference in the world. There's a mm-hmm. lot of wonderful people there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I saw before, and even already recently moving back there, just am freshly reminded of how as people wade out into the world's hurt, yearning to make Mm -hmm. a difference, motivated by lots of different things, when you come up against how broken the the world really is, Mm -hmm. if you are just motivated by either a sense of guilt or uh, just duty alone, or even an idealism, that we're going to solve these world's problems, Mm -hmm. uh, um, that that ultimately that's going to run dry because Mm -hmm. the world's problems are going to outlast our enthusiasm. And if there's not something really deep nourishing us in that journey, we won't be able to sustain it. Mm.
1: Well, you know, I would just simply say amen to that. I mean, mm. I don't know what else to add. I think you've nailed it. Um, and it's so important for us to keep singing that song over our lives, mm-hmm. to pray that prayer of our lives, to sing and pray that over the lives of others as well. Um, and I think it also beckons the question of um, where does our faith truly lie? Mm. And does it rest in... Uh, our nonprofits, our churches, as it rests in companies, governments. Now, obviously, they all have a place mm-hmm. in God's economy, mm-hmm. but ultimately, I think our faith is in the word of Jesus, who is trustworthy when he says one day he will come to restore all things that is broken unto himself. But for the time being, I think what it means to partner in this kingdom work. Is in faith and in trust, believing in that word that we're participating right now, Mm. but we can't give up on that trustworthy—not just that trustworthy word, but our trustworthy Savior. We give that up, and I think we're in big trouble. Mm.
0: Now, Eugene, you know that 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 fundamental idea that someday Jesus will return and set all things right. um, You know, I think many young people today would look at that and say, you know, that conviction actually undermines the work of justice it causes people to say hey it's all going to be set right someday so what do we need to do and and they kind of want to push that away but i know you feel like in many ways that confidence and conviction actually undergirds yes, right. a life of pursuing justice right. explain that because yeah. it seems it seems counterintuitive yeah. well you know
1: i would because i've had that i've had this conversation numerous times and i would first even affirm that pushback if you will mm-hmm. cuz i do think it could be used.
0: Mm -hmm. And it has at times. That's right.
1: Absolutely. It can be used because if we simply reduce Christianity, Jesus Christ, to a personal relationship, my quiet time, my walk with God, my church, uh, and it's simply my admittance to heaven, that does reduce the work and the beauty of the profound kingdom of God. And so I think we have to push back if for whatever reason we see that kind of theology being espoused in the church in some way. And as you and I just briefly mentioned, I feel like there have been folks that have pushed back the work and the call to justice by simply that particular comment. Or we see people pitting Jesus versus justice or it's justice versus evangelism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And by doing any of those things, we're reducing the gospel to the singular thing. And I'm just so grateful that when we speak about the gospel, I constantly tell our congregation to refer to it as the whole gospel, that it is the amazing work that Jesus rescues and saves and calls sinners unto himself. But at the same time, he's also at work restoring this broken world. Um, so I, I think you know, it's a, uh, it undergirds it because I think it reminds us again that Jesus is the beginning and the end, uh, that it's his word. It's his character. It's the kingdom of God. Uh, when we speak about flourishing, it's not just merely our imagination. Um, you know, When we talk about justice, I often tell our uh, church that Christians don't monopolize the conversation on justice. Uh, it's part of the larger Christian vernacular. But the why for us is very unique. Mm-hmm. You relinquish the why. There's nothing distinctive about our identities or our call. The why for us is because we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, uh, and therefore it has to undergird what we're doing. I I can't imagine, I can't imagine doing this work without um, the promises of the gospel. In fact, I can't imagine doing anything. I can't imagine parenting. I can't imagine being married. I can't imagine being a pastor without this connectedness to something that is greater. And that greater is not just the kingdom of God. I think sometimes we can speak about the kingdom of God as this nebulous thing where justice reigns and flourishing reigns. There is a king in this kingdom. Hmm. His name is Jesus. And so for us to forget this, neglect this, or to stop worshiping this Jesus, um, it's probably one of the worst um, dangerous ways of thought that sometimes I feel like is infiltrating kind of our, our worldview today mm.
2: Yeah. Mm. well said
0: in in overrated you of course you're clearly calling people beyond kind of a shallow uh, slacktivism into real mm-hmm. costly ministry service laying life down um, in in all manner of ways and fighting trafficking and, and and aiding the homeless and lots of things but but before you call folks out there, you really emphasize that it begins with loving those closest to us, in our home, our spouse, our children, our roommates. Why is that so important?
1: You know, I think uh, there's a couple of reasons why. You know, when we speak about costliness or death or dying to ourselves, that's not anything new that I'm writing in this book, right? I mean, I think the Bible, Jesus speaks about this. So it's not just the work of justice that you encounter um, struggling or persecution or death. It's part of our Christian identity. I'm not saying it's the totality of our identity. But Jesus speaks about that if you want to, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. So uh, I think that's something that I wanted to kind of highlight and point out. Um, but when it comes to like this uh, discipleship in the here and now, Um, Again, I can't speak for others, but I know for myself, one of my confessions has been that it's a bit tempting sometimes to become that much more engrossed about things over there. And simultaneously, I'm literally neglecting the very things that God has placed in front of me. The things that you mentioned, my marriage, my kids, my neighborhood, my church— And I don't know why or how, but I think I've heard this now from so many people that there is something very attractive, almost seductively attractive about being um, about that work over there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think maybe it's easier. Maybe it makes us sound more heroic. It makes kind of the whole savior complex uh, to kind of be that much more infatuated. But it's there. And I think we just have to name it. And it doesn't mean that it, it's, a, it's a battle between local and global. All of it matters to God. All of it matters to God. And nor do I want to pit uh, people into the zero-sum mentality that one is more important than the other. But I think it is something very telling about our formation and our discipleship. If we're saying and preaching and calling forth people to a certain thing over there, and yet we're not embodying it in the here and now, um, you could call that duplicitousness. Mm. Uh, you can call that shallowness. I'm not sure what it is, but I think there's something about that our presence and embodiment here, that's the thing that informs the way that we live our lives even over there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's not to say that it can't happen the other way around, but I think there is something disconnected. Uh, I once. Um, hung out with this particular um, uh, artist. Uh, He's a a musician, fairly well-known in the Christian circles. I don't have to mention his name. But one of the things that he said that really uh, struck a chord with me, he said that he knows a lot of other musicians and speakers. Um, And when he visits particular cities where these musicians or artists or pastors are from, He likes to ask local people what they know or think about these particular folks because it's what people around you say about that person that speaks to your true embodiment of those things. And he wasn't saying this in a judgmental way, but it's something about what you are just talking about, the necessity of living it out in the here and now around us.
0: Mm, Yeah, and I I, I really... Think what you expressed about the the seductiveness of championing a cause that is far off, it, and it, it may be a far far off in the sense that it's on the even the other side of town, or I mean, it might even literally be on the other side mm-hmm. of the street, but it's not impacting our choices and our experience of the world right now. It is it is abstract rather than concrete and costly. Mm-hmm. That's maybe the big dividing line. And so we can, we can kind of brand ourselves for the world, but even within our own mind, feeling a certain righteousness, which I think human beings kind of are wired to desire to feel, to feel sure. righteous. Sure. And one way to do that is to be about a cause. But if it remains abstract, then, then we're clearly not engaging in the way yeah. God intends. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you're, you're speaking and convicting me because I, I wrestle with it then and I wrestle with it now, mm-hmm. um, which is the reason why I think it's so important for people to be rooted in honest, accountable friendships and community mm. in your marriages, in your singlehood, in your friendships, in your church. It's too easy to, uh, you know, you've mentioned the word branding a couple of times. It's really too tempting to create a lifestyle out of your branding. Mm. And I think social media only kind of adds to yeah, that, if you will. So. Um, but I mean, it's something that I think maybe we should just name, that it might not just be a one-time struggle, but it's an ongoing, lifelong struggle mm-hmm. um, that we have to really be mindful about. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. There's a passage in the Brothers Karamazov um, by Dostoevsky, where he describes a um, a doctor mm. who who sh- he confesses that he um, when he thinks about humanity as a whole, mm. he he feels almost this ecstatic joy in in loving humanity, mm. but when it comes to one man who's uh, next door who's coughing at night and keeping him awake, he will feel this revulsion and even hate for this one mm. man because he's uh, keeping him from sleeping. Mm. And I, 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 I remember reading that and feeling so convicted that it, it's so easy to feel that, um, you know, feel righteous because of indignation about mm. an issue or feel righteous because I, I care about or advocate for a mm. cause um, as opposed to the, the small daily sacrifices that are part of loving the neighbor well. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. May we do that um, honestly mm-hmm. uh, in our lives. It reminds me of uh, kind of a similar quote by you know, Mother Teresa who says, you know, if, you want, uh, to, if you want peace in the world, um, love your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, she's not calling that, that to be the totality of our formation, but there's something about the locality mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that I think it's so impactful that none of us can say, well, I don't have a family. We're all in community in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's important for us to keep emphasizing mm. uh, that yeah. truth.
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about practices, just p- p- daily habits, mm-hmm. rhythms that you feel... Uh, just are particularly significant to sustaining in this work of justice and mercy. As we've talked about, it's costly, it's hard. Even if we know it's going to be difficult when you get out there, it's even harder so often. And so what are the things that, especially young people, but frankly, any of us at any stage of life can put in place that, that will help nourish the soul for that long journey? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think this is for all of us. You know, we happen to have a lot of young people, but lots of, it's a multi-generational church, and we're seeing a lot of folks that are kind of in their latter decades of their lives also sharing about these concerns that they have for themselves and others as well. Um, you know, it's not rocket science. I'm, it's almost going back to the basics, if you will. Um, but for me, it's been about reading Scripture, being grounded in Scripture. The key for me is that I'm reading scripture not for the sake of producing sermons, Mm -hmm. which is a challenge if I can be honest. Um, It's prayer, Uh, it's going on lots of walks. Walks have been uh, a great source
0: of balm for me. Mm. Um, What what do you do while you walk? Is it it thinking? Is is there intentional prayer or is it more just being? It's
1: kind of all of the above. Sometimes it's it's all of the above. Sometimes I am thinking, I'm worrying, I'm bringing my worries to God. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like I'm taking and acknowledging some of the toxic thoughts in my head and trying to flush them out. Sometimes it's praying. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm walking with my wife and so we're talking and praying Mm -hmm. together. Uh, If there's one thing that I try to be legalistic about, it's the Sabbath. I think it's important. Now I didn't always feel that way, but as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that this is that God who created us. That when He instituted the gift of the Sabbath, He knew what He was talking about. And so I'm trying to make that more of a regular rhythm and habit in my life.
0: And what does that look like for you as a pastor? Because it's not Sunday, obviously. It's hard.
1: So I can't. So it's this is hard. It's hard for me to take one full day off. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I take two six-hour chunks Mm. to just disconnect from all gadgets, uh, phones, internet, uh, where I try to just spend some time uh, enjoying God and enjoying God's provision and providence in my life. Uh, I just got back from a Sabbath, spent two days out in the woods before coming here. Um, So there are things that I know that are life-giving that I feel like God's given me a joy for. So outdoors, fishing, sports, uh, and so I try to do those things. Uh, and then there are things that I do to feel like I'm learning and growing. I'm exercising the different faculties of my soul uh, my intellectual, my emotional, my spiritual, my physical. Uh, you know, we're, all of those things are connected, not compartmentalized. Now it's easier said than done. Uh, my wife, who happens to be a therapist, uh, she did a long, long work. I hope she never bills me, but she did a long work <laughs> in my life to help me to realize and confess that I am a workaholic and that I will be a recovering workaholic for the rest of my life. Um, but it took a lot, over probably about 12, 13 mm. years for me to confess that I'm a workaholic mm. for f- lots of complex reasons. Uh, maybe it's the immigrant work ethic that my parents ingrained me in. And rather than acknowledging that I've overcome it and I'm completely good, she's helped me to realize, you know, you'll always be a re- recovering workaholic, but there's just certain things that you need to do to help you thrive mm. in that acknowledgement. Mm. And so those are some of the things. Mm-hmm. Um, one last story that I'll tell you is that, you know, everything that I mentioned, it really sounds good because it is good. It's mm. good for the soul. Mm. Now, I just have to be honest and say, I wrestle with some of these things, particularly the rhythm part. Mm. Like, it's just jagged sometimes. Uh, This past uh, Monday, this past Monday, I uh, uh, unannounced visited my parents who live six miles away from us. Um, My father is in his 80s, my mom in her 70s. Uh, Both born in North Korea, have gone through um, unfathomable things in their life, children of the Korean War. And uh, I... Went to their house unannounced and realized that my father had left for a walk. And uh, all I heard was my mother upstairs. And um, I walked upstairs and I heard praying, singing. And it was just the image. She didn't know I was there. I left without her even knowing. Her head is literally buried in her scriptures in the Bible. And she's praying and she's singing hymns in Korean. And I was so moved by that that I just realized, you know, like, man, I I tweet like a pro. I uh, sometimes am called a social media guru by people. I don't know what that means. And I'm not trying to shame or or slam those things. I just walked away realizing that um, I need more of that in my life. And it's not... Rocket science. I just need more of that in my life. And so um, I suspect that for those who are listening to this or watching it, I think the knowledge is all there. Hmm. There's such a plethora of information. Uh, Your podcast will only add to that. It's not like we don't know. I think it's a matter of having the discipline then to be able to acknowledge this is not only good, but it is part of God's plan for the flourishing of my soul, for the mm-hmm. marathon of discipleship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we have to do it, which we just have to do it.
0: Yeah. There's a lot more that could be said, but I think that's a great place to end because it is, it ultimately boils down to that choice, right? And a choice that springs not out of guilt or duty mm. or obligation, but a sense that this is where good life is. Mm. Um, that this is, this is where we flourish, and if, mm. if we don't choose that, then, then we won't. Mm. Well, I, I, would just,
1: I would add that this is why the gospel, the whole profound, beautiful gospel, has to be at the center of it all, so that everything that we do is in response to it. Uh, you mentioned the whole guilt and shame. Um, the reality is people can use guilt and shame. And they use it because sometimes it works in the short run, but it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. The gospel is sustainable. Fear works in the short run, uh, but the gospel is not perpetuated by the currency of fear. And so I think uh, in this whole justice work, justice is really part of our discipleship. And so I I love telling people that, uh, you know, the book, CAFO, it's not a, this isn't a, for me, this isn't an, an adoption or orphan conference. You talk about those things. It's a gospel conference.
0: Absolutely. And
1: we do this out of response, and that's the reason why we care about those things. And so I would just, again, urge as a fellow brother in Christ, as a fellow um, person that it feels at times ragged, jagged, stumbling, fumbling along, uh, to urge people, to, to remind people you're not alone. and There are so many like us. Uh, that love Jesus, and we're responding to Jesus' love. And so may we keep the gospel at the center. And when we feel lost, when we feel exhausted, just
0: keep coming back to home base. Uh, And that's the gospel. Eugene expressed it so well. In this good, God-honoring work of justice and mercy, any of us can get off track. We can make it more about ourselves, about our cause, or even about the good results we want to see. These motives can carry us for a time, but we will ultimately run dry. We'll only keep at this work if we have a deeper source, drinking from God's love in daily and weekly rhythms that give us time in His Word, in prayer, in Sabbath rest, and other habits that feed the soul. So as we wrap up here, I'd encourage you to ask yourself, what rhythms do I have in place that nourish my soul, that keep it rooted deep in the gospel and water it with the life-giving refreshment of God's love? If we don't have a solid answer for that, we need to make some changes. The great news is that God's good gifts are there for us. They are held out at no cost. We just need to make a priority and the habits of opening ourselves to receive. You've been listening to Justice and the
2: Inner Life with Jed Medefint, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit kfo.org.